Welcome to the Enrollment Insights Podcast. In this podcast, our goal is to focus less on the promise of best practices and instead look for the processes and the questions that spark internal reflection and lead to novel solutions tailored to your institution. I'm Angela Brown, Senior Enrollment Insights Leader at Niche, and my guest for this episode is Jill Goodman. Jill is a consultant for independent and private schools with over 20 years of experience working with organizational leaders. She specializes in helping schools advance their mission through qualitative research, strategic visioning, leadership mentoring, and small shop development capacity building. Jill is well known for her presentations on educational advancement, leadership, and constituency relations that have been well received by audiences across the country. She is a frequent podcast guest, blogger, and author, and she can be reached at jillgoodmanconsulting.com. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Angela. I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, before we dive in, I'm going to start with our two questions that we ask every guest on this podcast. The first is, what is something you tried that didn't work and what did you learn? I'm glad you asked me that because I've been thinking about this from the time that I got this question. So most recently, I was asked to uh, return in person to presentations, associations, conferences, things like that. And uh, of course, in the last two and a half years, I learned how to give really engaging and informative sessions on Zoom, which which is a really different skill set. And so I worked on that and kind of perfected it, and I was pleased with that result. But when faced with giving this presentation in person, I was really nervous about it. And so I practiced and I reviewed all these notes from a coach that I'd worked with years ago on live presentations, and I I showed up to give this talk back in February at a conference. And I, I sort of plowed through the content, uh, you know, the way you would on Zoom and I memorized everything. I was really nervous about it. And then I noticed at about the 40 minute mark that I was really losing my audience. They were, you know, on their phone. One guy was kind of dozing. I completely panicked. I started talking faster. I was kind of sweating and it just wasn't <laughs> good. So after the talk, I, I realized that I completely forgot that I had this great opportunity to really engage with my audience and to laugh with them and get their input and help them really talk to each other and offer support. And I, I kind of forgot that I needed to stop and include them in the talk, which, which of course you can do when you're live in a, in a way that's just really different than anything you can do on Zoom. And um, so now, of course, I've adjusted it and it's a much better experience for my, for my attendees and for me. And uh, I have these breaks all put in the conversation. So all of the ones that I've done since are, are much better. And I, I really, I needed to relearn that, shall we say. I think that's a really great lesson for all of us, as, as some of us may be out of practice from, from presenting in person, that it is a really different skill set. And I think we're all getting to this place of having to relearn how to capture an audience's attention and keep it in person, it's very different from doing that on a screen. And so I, I appreciate you mentioning that, but I also think it will be heartening for people who are listening and are familiar with your work to know that even Jill Goodman can have some anxiety <laughs> and, <laughs> and stress around, around public speaking. It's something that impacts us all. So I think that's a great reminder. So our next question is, what practices do you use to brainstorm and bring new ideas into your work? I do listen to a lot of podcasts. I read a lot of books, whether they're business books or fiction books, things like that. 
I talk with a lot of people uh, in this educational space, whether it's my fellow colleagues in consulting or school leaders, but I'm, I'm also interested in not just the educational space, but also adjacent industries. I enjoy thinking about ideas and practices from these other industries or thought centers and relating that to the educational space. Sometimes as you can see in my blog writing, uh, and I talk about these things in these presentations and whatnot, but it mostly affects my blog writing uh, when I draw these inspirations and it affects my practice in different ways, which is, which is great. I actually, one of the things that I think I like the most about your blog writing and something that I think makes it a bit distinctive from a lot of the other things that you see in the industry is that you have this great way of making connections with something that you've read or something that you've heard that's completely unrelated sometimes to education, but you always manage to bring that back. And that's such a skill that I think is really commendable. I'd love for you to share if you have some podcasts that you would recommend or a book that you're currently reading or have read recently that's informed your work. Sure. Um, as for podcasts, I definitely have my favorites. I actually have two blog pieces on podcasts that I love. But the ones that I do always go back to are Hidden Brain and 99% Invisible, uh, Freakonomics, uh, Revisionist History is really interesting with Malcolm Gladwell. There's lots of really wonderful podcasts within our educational space that really bring informative content. Two books that I've been particularly fascinated by. The first one is by Lauren Nordgren called The Human Element that explores the idea of fuel and friction. So in every new initiative, an organization puts a lot of fuel into it to get it started, whether that's in R&D or marketing or customer support or new staff or infrastructure. But all that fuel causes heat that creates friction that can block the way forward or cause pushback. And then often, according to Nordgren, that's where the initiatives really fail. And the second book is by Dr. Roberta Gilbert, who is an expert on Bowen family systems theory. And the book is called Extraordinary Relationships. And though it explores nuclear family relationships and what kind of can go wrong and how you navigate them more effectively, I find it incredibly helpful in how I think about the interpersonal relationships at schools and how they affect the whole organization. That's great. We'll make sure that we link those in the show notes because those are some fabulous, fabulous recommendations. I'm on the podcast side. I'm a big fan of Freakonomics and Hidden Brain. I think I actually started listening to Hidden Brain because of something that you wrote. <laughs> so, well, thank you. So we'll, uh, we'll make sure that we link to those and your blog post about your favorite podcasts in the show notes. Those are great recommendations. So now we're going to jump into our discussion a bit. This is inspired by a blog post that you shared in the fall of 2020 for context for those listening about six critical experiences that impact family retention, which I'm really looking forward to digging into. But before we jump into the meat of the blog post content, I did want to ask, just given all of your extensive work in schools, if there are some trends that you're seeing with family retention since that post is published and if schools are starting to see any movement with the families that have joined their communities since the pandemic started. I, I am seeing a few trends. The first one I would say is the intentional creation of retention teams. Uh, those are groups of administrators and faculty, sometimes the school nurse, 
who meets regularly to identify and create a retention plan for families that they suspect might be thinking about leaving the school, which is great. It's a wonderful trend that I'm seeing, but what I'm not always seeing is some tactical steps to change the behavior or the culture that's impacting the retention. And so the retention teams tend to be more reactive than proactive in their approach. Uh, So in my more recent engagements, I've worked with administrative teams on more tactical solutions and implementation of some initiatives that will make a difference uh, on a deeper level. And each one of those initiatives are crafted for that school specifically based on the results of research that I did with the constituency of that school, the different constituencies in that school. And the second trend that I'm seeing is it's kind of a frustrating one around athletics. Uh, Families that are leaving the school that have come for a mostly very competitive athletic program, uh, they might leave a school because another school has made an offer for the opportunity for more court time or ice time or the promise of better training. I hear complaints from admissions directors that parents aren't actually that interested in the school's academics or their cherished traditions or student life or their requirements to ensure that each student really becomes a well-rounded, successful individual that's really in keeping with their mission. The families seem to only want to hear about the sport program, and then the families certainly can be easily become disillusioned and leave the school. And I would say a third trend, and this is good news, and really the one you asked about, is that I'm not really hearing that families are leaving in the wake of the pandemic that came Uh, in that pandemic for those related issues, for the most part, and at least for this upcoming school year, families are definitely sticking with their choice and new families are still arriving, you know, as they are seeing issues that they're not happy with, with their own public schools. So, so that is a, that is a definitely a good trend. Okay. That's great. And I, I do, I personally am thrilled (laughs) to hear that, that there's more of an intentional focus on retention because I, I really believe that as we've had these new families that have joined and, and continue to join, that's something that's going to be very, very important, especially since we are starting to have some external market forces that are impacting things for, for families right now with inflation and some of the unfortunate things that are happening with the market it's going to be really, really important for schools to continuously reinforce that value, not just for people who are new, but even for families that may have been with you for some time. I did want to ask a question about situations where there are some obstacles that might exist in a community that are related to culture or institutional policy. Have you found that schools that you're working with have been receptive to taking that feedback and acting on it for retention? If, if they've come to me with an understanding that they're having a true problem with attrition, then they are usually pretty interested in thinking about how we can make some changes, which is good news. Often the people with the most impact can be the faculty If we approach the faculty correctly and thoughtfully, teachers have this incredible power and opportunity to shift the level of attrition at at a school. And so with a unified approach, there are some really interesting things that school leaders can implement with faculty or division heads that can change the rate of attrition and will change the rate of attrition over time. But the school has to first acknowledge that they have an attrition problem 
meaning that their percentage of attrition is usually far above the national average, which interestingly, sometimes that's something that the admissions director will see, and yet uh, he or she might have a, a difficult time getting the attention of their division heads and heads of school about that issue. Really? That's actually surprising. You you would think that, that that's enough of an alarm bell <laughs> for, for division directors and heads of school to take notice. Have you seen anyone who has had some trouble getting a another member of their leadership team to understand how significant attrition can be? Have you have you seen someone overcome that? And are there are there some tips that you might be able to share for someone who might be having that issue of getting the attention of the right people and supporting yeah. retention efforts? I always offer. I mean, I, I always offer and insist actually on speaking with uh, the head of school, usually uh, when I'm thinking about prospective clients. Uh, so sometimes m- just my encouragement or the fact that they've reached out to me will Uh, give them enough sense of agency to be able to reach out to their head of school about this. So sometimes I'm the first step to a really concerning issue. Sometimes there's lots of changes in leadership and they're not sure if it's the right time or uh, if if this is a good time to go to a head of school or division head because they're new in the role. So sometimes issues fester for a while because there's new leadership. Sure. And that can be concerning. Yeah, I, I think it, it does speak to, though, how powerful it can be at times to have a an objective third party come mm-hmm. in and deliver that message. You know, you can it's it's a little easier to ignore people that you see every day yeah. <laughs> and, and interact with on a day to day basis. And sometimes it really does take that additional voice. Sometimes just hearing from someone else can drive something forward. So to go back to the great list of items in your blog post that impact retention, I want to start with the first 90 days and the significance of that time frame. Can you share why that time frame is so important for new families and how admissions professionals can work with their colleagues in other areas to create continuity between the admissions process and the experiences that new families have in that time frame? Yeah, so... Let's just back up just a little bit and think about the mentality of a family, like where they're coming to you, where, what headspace are they in when they come to you? So when a family has decided to buy your program and is showing up on the first day of school, most parents will have two chief concerns. The first one is, did I make the right decision? So, and along with that is, is my child going to be happy here? Will they be cared for? Will she be recognized for her gifts and talents? Did I really make the right choice? And the second piece of these concerns on the first day of school is, can I really afford this? I thought I could, but now we might be making more sacrifices than I thought we'd have to. And is this really going to be worth the cost of tuition? So families are coming to you on that first day of school with risk and price as their two top concerns. So they're looking really closely at everything that's going on at your school, your communications, discussions with teachers, gauging the reaction of the child, how their child seems when they come home from school and they get in the car, the amount of homework, all of it. And they're looking really closely to make sure that the school is making good on the brand promises or whatever promises that they made or they heard in admissions. Uh, And if it's a new family, they really want to are really looking at these brand promises. If it's a returning family, they're looking to see that 
this year is going to be better than last year. So everything that happens in that first 90 days of school has greater weight and is being scrutinized by parents. And the challenge for the schools is to make this seamless transition for families out of the admissions office and over to new trusted faculty and staff relationships and to help them feel like they really belong in your community. And then of course, to show them evidence that the school is keeping its brand promises. So some schools have staff and admissions whose job it is to ensure that smooth transition, uh, which is wonderful and amazing, but not always the case. Yeah. And some of my clients work with me to help them understand how the faculty, as I mentioned before, how the faculty can play a bigger role in alleviating that anxiety for parents. Because the goal really is to help reinforce parents' good decision to choose your school, that they've made an excellent decision in choosing you. Are there some examples that you can share for some relatively simple ways that faculty can help support that transition? Because I know that's an area where people can really get stuck. Yeah. Usually it has to do with communications, personalized emails, so parents can really understand how their child is doing in their classroom. And one of the key pieces, it's a little interesting side note, but admissions officers often receive information about the family's hopes and wishes for the school experience of that child, why they're buying your program. And sometimes that information doesn't move on to the division heads and the teachers. And, and if the division heads and teachers had that information, the communication from the teacher could be that much more personalized. Everybody would be sort of on the same page about the goals and the hopes and the wishes for this school experience for that particular child. Right. And I, I think that's a great point to not just for your new parents, but for your returning parents, the importance of that constant communication. You don't want to overburden them with communication, sure. but I think especially younger and younger parents in these communities, they they want to know what's going on. They want to know, and they and they want to have a very personal experience. I know that I've heard some anecdotes from from friends of mine who have said, you know, I have my child at an independent school. Communication and personalization are two of the sort of hallmarks of the independent school experience, and what can distinguish it from other learning environments, but that means that 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 expectation doesn't go away. You know, they want their teacher to really know their child. They want to have a parent-teacher conference where it's truly about their child and it doesn't feel like they've copy and pasted a meeting <laughs> just mm -hmm. giving you the thumbs up and said your kid's doing fine. It really, no matter whether your school is large or small, that personal approach is so, so important. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I think that longer term, that's actually connected to another item on the list, which is the brand promise communications feedback loop. So we know that there was a lot of communication happening earlier in the pandemic because so much was changing in real time. There was so much to communicate. There was a lot of volume but there was still a need to make sure that families could see what was happening across age groups beyond what might have been happening at a kitchen table or in a child's bedroom. You know, they were seeing learning firsthand in some ways, but not in others because you're not in the buildings, you're not getting those opportunities. And so now we're in this place where schools, for the most part, have returned to, with some disruption, a more normal instructional format. But 
in a lot of those cases, parents still haven't been able to return to campus for the same volunteer opportunities or classroom visits or things that, that schools might have offered in the past. Have you found that schools are doing a good job this year sharing content that connects their brand promises with the student experience? You know, it's a good question. Uh, some certainly are doing that and some maybe not so well. As we talked about, the more personalized the content, the better it's going to land. If your school, let's say for example, is a K through six school and all the parents get communications that pertain to all the grades, meaning there's just one big running list of things that show up in the parent newsletter every week. And parents have to sift through the email to find information about their child's class. It's not likely to get read. And most parents will, they just won't read it. And your teachers and your front office staff are going to be overwhelmed with questions about the field trip and the cupcakes and this and that. And then bigger, bigger issue things like uniforms and whatnot. They're going to be overwhelmed with all these questions from parents about details that went out in the newsletter. And then at the same time, your teachers and your staff get frustrated and complain about parents that never read the newsletter. Right. <laughs> And then that cements this sort of unhealthy us versus them culture, mm -hmm. which could pretty easily be resolved by segmenting the inf information by grade. So, you know, which is really a great start to at least addressing that issue. I spoke with one communications director who had, you know, you've seen them, these expandable content where there's a little plus sign on, mm -hmm. on each side of it. So each grade had its own section. So grade K, one, two, three, with this little plus sign so parents could pick which grade information they really wanted to read and what was pertinent for their child or if they had multiple children they could just read those grades and additionally you know if teachers are given reasonable expectations from their administrators about communications and they have some latitude in what they're able to share with students and with parents they can be extremely effective in closing that brand communication feedback loop for that example with the expanded pieces, was that within a newsletter or was yeah. it on a, okay. That's it was a, like a constant contact kind of newsletter. So that is a question that I see a lot is from people who especially are working in these K-12 or PK-12 environments where you mm -hmm. have multiple divisions, a long range of grades, parents who have children in different age groups is how, what's the best format for a newsletter? How can we make sure that they're getting all the information that they need without giving them too much? What's the right day of the week? All of those questions. And I, I think to the degree that you can do some segmentation and also taking advantage of multiple platforms is not the worst thing in the world. You know, one of the things mm -hmm. that sure. I've done in the past is we had a newsletter that went out and showed up in people's mailboxes, but you clicked through to a web page. And each division had a web page that was updated and archived. So if you just wanted to see what was happening in lower school, you could just see what was happening in lower right. school and it was very scannable. So finding those opportunities for segmentation, I think are really helpful. Have you seen some other great examples of schools that seem to be doing that work especially well? So I work with schools to create systems that will work for them and are reflective of the research that I've done with them about what's actually happening at their school. So teachers can be quite resistant sometimes about creating this more personalized communication. And I'm not talking about the higher level communications that you and I just talked about, but informations that go to parents directly from teachers. And the wonderful thing that I hear when we implement these sorts of 
programs is that teachers will get great feedback from parents. They're so thrilled to hear about the amazing things that go on in the classroom, which happen all the time, because teachers do incredible work all the time. They're, they're rock stars. They do great work. Absolutely. But we tend to rely on the kids to tell us about it. We, we, <laughs> we rely on the kids to tell parents. And, and they're not really very reliable managers, you know, messengers. So, you know, teachers end up being really pleasantly surprised by the positive feedback and the gratefulness that they hear from parents when they take the time, just a little extra time to talk about what's happening in their classroom and the creative things that they're thinking about and doing and doing and how they're bringing their particular child along with the students in the class. So especially in a small school. So if you are listening, if you're an administrator from a small school and um, you have parents paying for a small school education, a small school environment, that's something that is a reasonable expectation from, from your parents. That's also a great opportunity to use your faculty as an extension of your marketing team. You know, yes. give them the agency to sell themselves and, mm -hmm. and what's happening in the classrooms. Are there, in addition to this anecdotal feedback from parents, are there specific data points or things that school communicators and admissions professionals can reference as they're trying to figure out whether or not they're doing this kind of work well? Yes, uh, you will definitely, there's some definite data points here. You'll see a reduction in attrition. You'll see better conversion from accepted to enrolled. You'll see a stronger inquiry pool because all three of those really speak to the school's positive word of mouth, which will happen when there's more personalized communication about how their child is doing at your school. There'll be fewer anxious phone calls to the admissions office from newly enrolled <laughs> families uh, because, you know, because they call because they don't know who else to trust or who to go to. And you'll have fewer anxious calls to division heads from your returning families, parents of children who've just started perhaps in that division who are unsure what's supposed to be happening. Sure. So I'm going to switch gears for this next question, because another thing that happened that has shifted so that earlier in the pandemic and the, the spring and the fall of 2020, especially, there was a big emphasis on gathering community feedback with these kind of granular micro surveys. So instead of doing the bigger surveys that might happen over the course of a more traditional year, people were doing weekly, monthly surveys just to kind of get a pulse check on how their community was responding to the way that they were navigating the pandemic. Now that things have shifted again, are there some ways that you're seeing school administrators gather feedback from families now that schools have returned to more normal operations, we'll say normal-ish, that are particularly effective? And what do you think is missing? So microsurveys can absolutely be helpful because it's just a couple of questions. It's not a big time commitment for parents to fill it out. It's about one subject usually. But the, the real question for me is with any data that you actively collect from parents, uh, what, what do you plan to do with it? How are you going to use it? Um, yeah. what, what are you going to impl implement as a result of it? And do you let parents know what you're going to do as a result of the feedback that you heard? So I was talking with an admin team recently that had been collecting data from par parent surveys and exit interviews for years. But the data never informed any future strategy or decisions in any kind of intentional way. And they would review the results at the end of the year, and then they would put it away, sort of dismiss it. They never discussed the results with faculty or created any new initiatives or came back to the parents to say, you know, we heard you. 
And now as a result of that, we're going to do X. And the school was seeing a shrinking applicant pool over the years. They were seeing increased attrition and the poor word of mouth due to this lack of consideration of the valuable insight from the surveys had really grown to a tipping point, shall we say. Mm. So the last thing I want to touch on is community involvement, which looks very different right now in school communities based on a variety of factors, everything from where you are geographically to your school culture, the protocols that you have in place. Are there some strategies that you would recommend for school leaders to use to make sure that their parents and caregivers are feeling connected to their school communities at this stage in the pandemic? I mean... I would love to see the sort of systematic check-ins with families from an administrator. And we, school certainly made a lot of effort to do that in the pandemic to make sure everybody was okay and felt good and had what they needed. But I would certainly like to see a systematic approach to that, certainly in that first 90 days, because waiting for the parent-teacher conference or the first quarter report is sometimes too late to really get a handle on issues that can lead to attrition. I certainly see a lot of electronic surveys, but I do think a more human connection like one-on-one phone calls or focus groups would certainly help parents feel like humans engaged with the important work of educating a child in a community and not a data point. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. So please keep talking to your families. That's one of the big, <laughs> don't assume that because things feel a little bit more normal that everyone is okay. They still need those touch points. They still need to know that they're part of a community that values them, right? I think that's that's a really yeah. big piece. I think so. So this is one that we didn't talk about in advance, but I do think it's relevant to some of the other things that we've touched on, and that is the swift and effective resolution of conflict. And that's another sort of pillar of the framework in your blog post. And we talked a little bit earlier about how important it is to be proactive to the extent that you can, but we know that schools are still more reactive than they are proactive in a lot of instances over the course of the year with a student. So I would love for you to share some best practices or just some great tips that school administrators can think about in terms of staying on top of and effectively resuming or resolving conflict with families. Because that's, I think that goes back to this, just making sure that people feel like they belong, like they're connected, that they're valued. And there's nothing worse than having an issue with your child and having it fester. Yeah. When conflicts arise with parents, they can be, they can come on really quickly. Yeah. Uh, they can be surprising to school leaders. Parents who seemed really happy, you know, last year or even two weeks ago can become volatile and unhappy pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Usually it has to do with what they expected Um, And we talked about this earlier in the conversation about why they chose your school, why they bought your program, and then the reality of the situation. For example, I talked with a school leader recently, and a parent, a new family at the school, became suddenly livid and came in the building, demanding to speak with the division head, the head of school, and the teacher all at the same time, refused to leave the front office until that happened. She had noticed that her child had a bruise that the child claimed she got on the playground. 
And so I asked the leader, this head of school, who was extremely surprised by this reaction from the parent, I asked her to look at the admissions records and find out why this family chose the school. Why had they actually bought this program? You know, what were their chief concerns? And, and it turned out that the child was bullied in her last school. So of course, that was going to be top of mind for the parents. And I doubt that child was actually being bullied. The child never even came to the teacher with the issue, but and maybe maybe that's a sign of bullying that they don't come to the teacher with the issue. I don't I don't actually know. But but everybody, if everybody had really known that that's what was happening with this child at another school, and that that was the family's top top priority, which was safety, a more safe and community based and friendly atmosphere, social connections for this child that were most important. Then imagine how much better that communication would have gone. And those interactions would have been if the family was confident that everybody really understood their goals and were really able to make good on those promises or those expectations for that child. So what happened in that particular situation, which is probably true in most conflicts with parents, is that a brand promise was broken. And the brand promise was clear on the parent end, but perhaps not as, not as clear on the school's end. So making sure that parents and the school are continually aligned with the understanding of where the child is, have the goals changed? Are they still intact? Is this still what we're striving for? What are we working on this year? And how are we going to show evidence that these things are actually moving forward? It's such a, I'm seeing a dotted line between this and some of the things that we talked about at the beginning of our discussion and that importance of an admissions team being very clear with division directors and the head of school about what incoming families are expecting and what their pain points are mm-hmm. and the problems that they are choosing your institution to solve for them, because that can really help in, in handling these conflicts when they, when they come up. So I, I think that's just a, a great a great place for us to kind of wrap things up. If people want to learn more about you, ask questions, get in touch, we we mentioned your website. Where else can people find you online? Yeah, my website is always the best way to contact me, jillgoodmanconsulting.com. Uh, to find out information about how I work with schools, the sorts of things that I do. I'm also on LinkedIn, so please feel free to connect with me there and on Instagram. Perfect. So we'll make sure that we link all of that in the show notes, um, including that blog post that we've been referencing throughout. We'll make sure that that's at the very top. So thank you so much, Jill, for your time today, all of your wisdom. There's some really great information here, and we're looking forward to continuing to see all the great work that you're doing with schools. Well, thank you. And thank you for your kind words. Thank you for the, inviting me to be here today to join you. Um, I'm honored to have spent this time with you today. And um, thank you again.